These words are from about 100 years ago, 1908, from Eugene V. Debs, slightly modified. Yes, I am my brother's and sister's keeper. I am under a moral obligation to them that is inspired not by any sentimentality, but by the higher duty I owe myself. What would you think of me if I were capable of sitting myself at a table and gorging myself with food and saw about me the children of my fellow beings starving to death? This morning I want to talk about cultivating empathy. And where does that topic come from? Well, I've long believed that empathy is at the core of ethical behavior. And by ethical behavior, we in ethical societies mean behaving towards other human beings in ways that honors and elicits their inherent worth, their best as we sometimes call it. Ethics is about human relationships. That's why at the Northern Virginia Ethical Society, we um, choose to have two candles on our table on Sunday mornings to symbolize that the smallest number in ethics is two. The kind of ethics that we mean is rooted in but goes beyond the golden rule that is in some form in every culture and every religion. Do unto others in ways that you want others to act towards you. Don't act towards others in ways that you don't want them to act towards you. Treat others as you want to be treated and don't treat others as you don't want to be treated. Fairly simple. But as George Bernard Shaw infamously said, the problem with the golden rule is that it doesn't account for taste. <laughs> treating another as you would be treated is a good start in ethics, but treating another as that other wants to be treated is another ethical level. And that requires empathy, an understanding of what the needs of that other person actually are, especially because they may be different from our own. I was also motivated to take up this topic this year because of two other places I encountered some thinking about empathy lately. One was in the presidential campaign. We've now elected a president of this country who says that he puts empathy at the center of his idea of what governance means. As he said in 2006, you know, there's a lot of talk in this country about the federal deficit, but I think we should talk more about our empathy deficit, the ability to put ourselves in someone else's shoes, to see the world through the eyes of those who are different from us, the child who's hungry, the steel worker who's been laid off, the family who lost the entire life they built together when the storm came to town. When you think like this, he went on, when you choose to broaden your orbit of concern and empathize with the plight of others, whether they are close friends or distant strangers, it becomes harder not to act, harder not to help. Well, I've also recently read a book that I'm recommending these days, Daniel Pink's book, A Whole New Mind. In it, he makes a case for empathy being one of the most important skills to learn for the 21st century a survival skill at work and in life. With increasingly multicultural contexts in our work life and neighborhoods, our ability to cope and succeed depends on empathy, and our children and grandchildren will need it even more. If you're interested in more depth on this topic, I'd recommend a book Virginia Held's 
book, The Ethics of Care, Personal, Political, and Global. She looks in this book at how empathy and caring can be the very root of ethical decision making. Her point is that we may be evolving today a new moral philosophy based on responsibility to care for real concrete persons, not a moral philosophy derived from abstract principles like the greater good for the greater number. Or there's Martin Hoffman's book, Empathy and Moral Development, especially helpful if you want to understand empathy in children and how we can nurture empathy at the younger ages. Well, I want to be clear about what I mean by empathy this morning because different writers on the topic have meant slightly different and sometimes very different things by that word. And the word is sometimes used in our culture in ways that aren't what I'm trying to convey this morning. Empathy, as I'm using it, simply is about understanding the state of mind, the emotions, and the needs of another person. It's the ability to put yourself in their shoes, figuratively speaking, not literally. You don't have to feel their pain, and that phrase used by former President Bill Clinton. That's sympathy, to feel similarly or the same. Empathy means to understand another's pain or joy. The pathy part that's in both empathy and sympathy words means feeling. There's another difference I want to highlight, the difference between empathy and compassion. Both of those words also have the same root. The passion and compassion means the same thing as the pathy and empathy means. Both prefixes, M and com, mean with. But compassion carries more of a sense of caring about others while empathy carries the more limited sense of understanding. Empathy is often the basis for compassion, I would maintain. It helps to understand what another feels if we're going to care for them. A side note, there's little that I personally find more irritating than someone who expresses compassion for my feelings when they've guessed completely wrong what my feelings are. <laughs> empathy is basic to ethics in our use in our use of the term ethics, because it helps us to see the other person as that other person actually is, not just as a clone of who we are. I think it's also helpful to think of empathy as the opposite of another concept which shares the same root word, pathy or feeling. Empathy, I believe, is the opposite of apathy. Apathy is to have no appreciation or understanding of the feelings and needs of others. And thus, we won't be likely to act in ways that take account of those needs and feelings. Sometimes our wider culture, especially in our teenage years, but for us adults too, teaches us that it's cool to be apathetic rather than empathetic. And frankly, to actively understand and take in the feelings of everyone around us, much less everyone in the world, would be too much. Part of learning about cultivating empathy is learning that there are boundaries. Now, I use the word cultivating with empathy this morning because I don't believe that empathy is like an on-off switch, that we either have it or we don't. Cultivating empathy is something I believe we can learn. It's an essential part of moral development, and like other aspects of moral development, it's a lifelong process, not just something children go through and then we have it as adults. Yes, attention to cultivating empathy is critical to teaching children to be empathetic and to be ethical and to act normally. 
heck, morally. <laughs> but adults can continue to cultivate, cultivate empathy as part of their lifelong ethical learning. I think it's helpful then to start with how empathy develops, the stages of empathy. And we all go through these. First and at the very core, there is involuntary empathy. Empathy that we feel without even trying. Many scientists and others have documented that we as human beings have empathy hardwired into us. Newborns in a nursery cry empathetically when there is another baby crying. They cry the same kind of cry. They literally feel with the other baby. If another baby cries a cry of hunger, they cry a hunger cry. If the other baby is in pain, they cry a pain cry. And adults can show involuntary empathy, if we haven't had empathy trained out of us. When we see someone in distress, we actually feel distress ourselves. And when we see someone happy, we can actually catch that happiness. We not only identify with the other, we take in their feelings and really feel them. As children mature in their ability to understand the world, they begin to understand, for one thing, that they are not the whole world, and that distress or happiness in their surroundings isn't necessarily their own distress or happiness. They are individual human beings, in some ways separate from others, and so are those others. And the empathy that they feel for another's pain, they realize, is not exactly the same feeling that the other is feeling. And perhaps this begins with such experiences as a child's caregiver guessing wrong about what the feeling is that a child is having. Sometimes our guessing wrong can be a learning experience for our children. The child uses their identification with the caregiver, their natural empathy, to realize that the other is like them in this, and then maybe begin to realize that they might guess wrong too. However, if a child is in an environment when nobody guesses actively about their feelings and needs, or nobody expresses those guesses by following up in compassion or action, that's one way to teach a child not to express empathy. Empathizing with children and being right a lot of the time in one's guesses is, I think, the most fundamental way that society cultivates empathy. Gradually, a child develops more and more of a sense of herself or himself as a differentiated individual, and then gradually develops the idea that others also are selves that are different from the child's self. As this really happens, empathy develops into a more mature form. Typically, by eight years of age, children can take in information about the background of a situation and guess that another person might feel differently than the child would feel in the same situation. Now, here's a story about how mature empathy might work with adults when we remember to exercise it. The author Stephen Covey tells this story about riding in a subway one Sunday. It was very peaceful on that subway car until at one stop, a man and some children got on. He assumed that the children belonged to the man. The children were running around the train, talking loudly, even grabbing newspapers of strangers. And the people on the train were becoming irritated, even angry. They were more upset that the man who got on with the children just sat there doing nothing to stop the children's behavior. 
Finally, Covey decided to confront the man out of his own distress and seeing the distress of the other people on the train and wanting to do something. He was acting in part then out of empathy. He asked if the man might try to control the children a little bit more. The man looked up and apologized. He explained that they had just come from the hospital where his wife, the mother of those children, had died. He, guessed, he said that he didn't know how to handle her death, and he guessed the children didn't know either. As Covey said, everything changed in an instant. Empathy shifted, in other words. From the distress of the other passengers and even himself, his empathy shifted to the children and the man. He understood now the context of their behavior. It didn't mean that he and the other passengers had to passively accept that behavior, but their understandings of the feelings and needs of that man and, that, and, their ch and his children, that newly discovered empathy, made all the difference in how they reacted. They were more free to react in a way likely to be effective in getting their own feelings and needs answered. That's essentially Covey's explanation of the story. But I have another insight into the story beyond what Covey tells of it. And it is this. When our own distress is high, it's more difficult to find empathy for others. The man and his children were in great distress. I'd guess they had strong feelings of sadness, of loneliness. Their need for hope, for the connection, those were needs that couldn't be met any longer in the connection to their mother, his wife. Until they could find some way to find hope, some way to find connection that would meet some of that need, they would likely find it harder than usual to empathize with others. And, for instance, the others on the subway train who were finding it difficult to meet their needs for tranquility and calm and serenity and were also in distress and also less likely to find empathy for the man and his children. So part of cultivating empathy, learning to be more empathetic more often, I think is to be in an environment a lot of the time in which we find empathy. I believe that's one big reason that institutions like ethical societies and churches and other religious organizations survive and thrive. Because in general, people find their the empathy and understanding that they want in their lives. We are social beings as human beings. Empathy is one of our basic survival needs. We need to understand what's going on for others and we need to be understood by others. Not necessarily everyone at every moment, but to be able to find a few people who can understand what we're going through. That's what nurtures our own moral development, our own ethical behavior, in other situations. In that complex, mature empathy, we respect the autonomy of other persons and recognize that the other person is not the same as we are. They may have different feelings than we would have had in the same situation. I don't like to think that I would have reacted to my partner dying by becoming deaf and blind to my children yelling and taking newspapers away from strangers. Yet I can see in this man's case, that was his reaction. In such a situation, I could choose to judge his reaction and get angry or to act on the understanding of his feelings and needs and maybe express that to him and help him get into a place where he can deal with the children.
In mature empathy, we also learn to empathize with the likely feelings and needs of people in groups or categories or classes of people who have disadvantages that we don't have, that we have not experienced. We take up causes, we take up ethical action or social action designed to deal with what's making life more difficult for others. Causes that respond to that human distress with solutions to help those others realize more of their own potential, their own worth. The more mature we are able to be in empathy, the more we are able to see and discover solutions that respond to the actual needs and feelings of those we are trying to serve. I'm guessing that many of you too have experienced or seen attempts to help others that fail, usually because the solutions don't take into account the differences, the real humanity, the reality of those who are being served. Understanding that others' needs and feelings may differ from our own is crucial. And being in contact with those others, being in conversation with them, being in connection with them is the only way we have to help check out our assumptions about what they're really feeling. So another way to cultivate more mature empathy and thus more mature ethical living is to work towards diversity in our relationships. With empathy, it's important to note, we avoid treating people in any categories as mere abstractions while still taking into account the differences which may arrive in how they're treated based on their group identity. It's important to avoid either of those extremes. For instance, that of believing that an individual can overcome all racism and sexism and all kinds of discrimination, or of believing that a people are wholly defined by their membership in a race, a sex, etc. Mature empathy means we look at the individuals as people and what influence their context has on them. Influence, not determination. We don't reduce people if we have real empathy to membership in a group or a class or a category. Another aspect of mature empathy and ethics is moving beyond judgment. Judging others, and especially others as members of groups or categories or classes of people, as wrong or bad for behaving differently than we might have. It's just like a man or it's just like a woman, or applying such judgment to racial or ethnic groups, people in a different political party than the one we support, and so on. If sometimes those people, people in those groups that are not our own, if those people act in ways we don't agree with, and we are maybe even in distress because the way they're acting keeps us from meeting our own needs, in mature empathy, we look at the context. We don't judge the behavior of people in those classes as badly motivated or evil if it's not exactly what we'd do in that situation. We look for the roots of their actions and design solutions that work on the roots. Empathy, in other words, doesn't have to mean that we accept behavior that is affecting us in ways that we find upsetting. Ethics doesn't mean we are doormats. Empathy means that we understand the needs and feelings of others. Ethics means that we value those feelings and needs of others on a plane equal to our own, but not above our own, on the same plane. Love your neighbor as you love yourself is one religion's maxim that expresses this idea. For many in their ethical development, for all of us sometimes, 
The challenge is to value the needs and feelings of other people more than we do. But the maxim is, as you love yourself, not more than you love yourself. Empathy and ethics means understanding and valuing the needs of others on the same plane as our own. For some of us in our ethical development, for all of us sometimes, the challenge is to value the needs and feelings of ourselves more. The challenges then of ethical living include not only understanding the feelings and needs of others, but our own. Self-empathy, empathy for our own needs and feelings, is parallel and just as important as empathy for others. My own work with a process called compassionate communication or nonviolent communication has taught me that self-empathy is itself not a very easy task. Even when we are lucky enough to have developed a skill for empathizing with others in understanding what they need and what they feel, we often have difficulty figuring out and expressing our own needs and feelings. Like that man on the train, we sit and do nothing. Like most of the passengers on that train, we sit there and do nothing. We sit waiting for someone else to figure out what we really need or, that what, or what someone else really needs. Cultivating empathy, I believe, then, is both cultivating an attitude and action. First, we need to be more conscious that we don't necessarily know by intuition what others are feeling and needing. And second, we need to practice. We need to ask people who are connected with us if we're right. We need to spend more time thinking through our own times of being upset to find what's behind that for us. In my work with compassionate communication, I've learned over and over and over and over with myself and with others that most of us in this so-called modern world don't have a good vocabulary for our feelings and needs. Many of us have been taught over and over in so many ways that having feelings or needs is a bad thing, a sign of weakness. And communicating our feelings and needs to others is even worse than having them. And yet we expect that others are going to understand in us what we don't know ourselves. Well, suddenly this year, apparently the word empathy has become popular. What great timing. In a, in a time of more insecurity and more unpredictability. So I'd recommend taking this opportunity to at least think about making a priority of cultivating empathy in our lives, working more to understand what's going on for others and our own inner feelings and needs in order to find ways to increase happiness in our personal lives, in our ethical action, in our causes, in our world. For the future, let's work together for less apathy and more empathy in our families, in our ethical societies, in our communities, in our causes, in our world. Less apathy and more empathy. shows an opening quote from a political figure. This next quote is from someone in a quite different field, from an Aikido instructor, Mitsugi Sautome. 
If you were all alone in the universe with no one to talk to, no one with which to share the beauty of the stars, to laugh with, to touch, what would be your purpose in life? It is other life, it is love, which gives your life meaning. This is harmony. We must discover the joy of each other, the joy of challenge, the joy of growth.